The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please turn your scriptures to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus, Exodus 25, you'll find that on page 65 of your pew Bible. We're reading the whole chapter. We're dealing with the preparation, the, really the legislation and instructions of building the tabernacle. This is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. (coughs) You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for its four rings of gold, and you shall make for it four rings of gold, and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. 
Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make me a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand." Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, amidst all this detail now, we pray that you will reveal yourself, you dwelling in the midst of your people, even at this very moment, That you will reveal Jesus Christ as the only means by which we may come to you, approach you, and have fellowship with you. Lord, build us up as we look to the tabernacle. May we look to the greater tabernacle, the Lord Jesus. And may we look beyond that to our eternal dwelling place in the new heavens and the new earth. Open my mouth and open all our ears as we now worship you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that was quite the reading, wasn't it? What on earth are calyxes after all? Well, we're entering into seven chapters of legislation about the tabernacle. Seven chapters. And then, picking up in chapter 34, we'll repeat those seven chapters once again with the actual building of the tabernacle and all the legislation taking place. Something like 14 chapters out of 40 chapters in Exodus, 14 out of 40, are dedicated to the design and building of this tabernacle. That's a staggering amount of chapters given to this issue, the tabernacle of God. What is the tabernacle? It's God's dwelling place amongst Israel. It's the place where he was principally worshipped and where the people could draw near to him through sacrifice. It's the epicenter of Israelite life. That is until the temple which replaced it came. 
Naturally, when we're thinking of these ideas of communion, fellowship, worship, sacrifice, and dwelling place, our minds surely are naturally led to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read this in John 1.14, that the Lord Jesus tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled amongst us. That, that Christ was the very fulfillment of tabernacle and temple worship. And yet, as we turn to the end of Scripture, Revelation 21, we read of the dwelling place of God is with men. Literally in the Greek, it's the tabernacle of God is with men. We're seeing then, aren't we, from this earliest days of the life of Israel, this theme of God dwelling with and in the midst of his people, principally in the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately fulfilled for all of us in the new heavens and the new earth where we shall dwell with our Lord Jesus for eternity. This chapter then and these chapters are fundamentally about how God graciously dwells in the midst of his people. Though we see him not, he is here with us this very night. We are on the timeline of God dwelling with his people. He is here. He is with us wherever we shall go. This is fundamentally about God's gracious dwelling with his people and how a holy God can dwell with an unholy people. And we're going to see that in four sections. Really, there's four sections in this chapter. The legislation, first of all, about the tabernacle. That's how God determines he is to be approached. How God determines he is to be approached. Verse 10 is legislation on the Ark of the Covenant. That tells us about the fact that God dwells in holiness. Then verse 23, there's legislation on the table for bread. That teaches us that God provides for his people. And finally, in verse 31, legislation on the golden lampstand. God is the light of his people. So briefly and at fairly high level, I think, on all these matters, let's begin working through the text, God dwelling with his people. Firstly, we have general legislation about the building and design of the tabernacle, which tells us God himself determines how he will be approached. God determines how he will be approached. To put it another way, how can sinful man approach and worship and commune with a holy God? How can that Happen, And the first thing we notice is that God must be approached willingly. Verse 2, he must be approached willingly. Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. There is a command and a condition to this contribution. Take a contribution, but from those whose heart moves them. That is to say, friends, service to God, which God accepts, must be by faith and not by force. You can't force people into service of God. Yes, we're told later of a tithe requirement, 
But this collection for the tabernacle is clearly on a voluntary basis. Those who desired to give. And notice the kind of collection, verse 3 following, uh, that, that God was speaking of. Precious metals, verse 3. Colored yarns and materials, verse 4. Animal skins, verse 5. Various oils and spices and precious stones, verses 6 and 7. Friends, in other words, the wealth that they had taken from Egypt in the Exodus is now to be returned to God in the building of his glorious house. But think on those matters before them, the nature of the collection. Precious metals, uh, precious stones, animal skins, oils, spices. There is in this collection more than a passing recollection to what life was like before the fall. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden. Why? Because that was the original dwelling place of God with men, where man dwelt with God in his presence and were blessed according to his terms. Now they're in an age of sin, a fallen age, and the tabernacle is to be a replication of sorts of that Garden of Eden sanctuary, where once again God's people can draw near to him and he can dwell in their midst. Now we know in time, I've already said this, we've said it before, the tabernacle will give way to the temple. The temple, we know, John chapter 2, will give way to the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in the, the, the theology of Scripture, Christ is the fulfillment of temple imagery in scripture yet as we look forward even from there we've already mentioned the new heavens and the new earth there we read of a description of god dwelling with his people again and we read a glorious description of the church of god it's called the new jerusalem and that new jerusalem is spoken of in these terms streets paved with gold and precious stones adorning the foundations of the city. A city of total perfection, of infinite value. Friends, I think it's really interesting and wonderfully encouraging to us that first we see the garden glory filled with gold and precious stones. We're told there there's delium, onyx, and the gold in that area is good. Then we see the golden precious stones in the tabernacle, which then leads us to the wonderful glory of the incarnate Christ. And we get to the end of scripture and what do we see? We see God's people being described in these terms by gold and precious stones. The glory of God revealed in the garden, in tabernacle and temple in Christ is shared with his people in the new Jerusalem. It is we who are described in terms of precious metal and precious stones. God has threaded through all of scripture a glorious trajectory, yes, of his own perfect, holy, and glorious dwelling with us. 
until he leads us to the very point in Revelation 21 where he shows us that we have been made perfect, we have been made holy, we have been made glorious with him. That's wonderfully encouraging to us. But the second thing we see about this description of the tabernacle is that God is a God is approached by his drawing near to people. Verse 8. It's not the other way around. God is approached, or God dwells in the midst of his people, by him coming to them. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. That's profound. When we think of what we've just seen at Mount Sinai, the distance and the threat of death of anyone who came near to the Mount of Sinai, showing them that they could not approach God in their own merit. So what does he do? He comes to us. He came to Israel. He said, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. God with us leads us straight once again to the ministry and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? The third thing we see in this opening section is that God expressly directs Israel and us how we are to draw near to him. How we are to draw near to him. Verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Exactly how I show you, you shall make it. This command is repeated several times throughout the Pentateuch in different places. The tabernacle, which is the centerpiece of God's dwelling with his people, the centerpiece of worship and sacrifice, was to be made meticulously according to God's revealed plan. Why is that? It's very important for us. Because the design of the tabernacle and all its furniture reflected the character of God as he relates to sinners. It reflects the character of God, his dwelling place, but in respect to how he relates to sinners. That is to say, if Israel were to design the tabernacle and build it in any other way than prescribed by God, they would simply be saying, Lord, we do not need to approach you as you determine. We can come according to our own imaginations, according to our own merit. To reject the pattern of the tabernacle would be ultimately to reject the fulfillment of the tabernacle, Jesus Christ himself. That's how serious this is. Salvation is at stake for the Israelites. Should have taught them a great lesson. Should teach us also a lesson. Amidst all the details of the tabernacle, of its furniture, of the sacrificial system, of the laws, the promises, all the details of conquering the land, Israel ought always to have been looking to an end point, a goal to the promised seed, Jesus Christ. These things did not save them, though they were to obey them. 
It was Christ to come, the Messiah King, the servant. You see the trajectory of their salvation, of all their worship, of sacrifice, of the design of the tabernacle was in Jesus Christ himself. The principle here of verse 9 is clearly Christological. It's fulfilled in Christ. One cannot approach God savingly outside of Christ. One cannot approach God savingly outside of the prescribed means. It's not the Christ of our imaginations that works. The Christ of our imaginations won't save us. We have to believe in a Christ, if I can borrow the language of this text, a Christ concerning the pattern that has been revealed to us in all of Scripture. It must be Jesus on his terms, or we do not have Jesus at all. Salvation itself rests on this. Our Lord would say in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Plain and simple, that's where this principle terminates. There is salvation in no one else save the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have the wrong Christ, the wrong Messiah, you do not have salvation. Now, building on this principle of presence is verse 10, legislation of the Ark of the Covenant. And this teaches us that God dwells in holiness. God dwells in the midst of his people, but in the realm of holiness. Again, this is the first of two lengthy expositions upon the Ark of the Covenant. We'll come back to it later on. But what do we see about the ark? We see, first of all, the instructions of how to make it. Vitally important again. A chest-like structure covered in gold inside and out. Two cherubim on top. Two poles overlaid with gold used for carrying it. Inside, we would find Aaron's rod, the tablets of the law, and the manna of the wilderness. And the ark was to be placed in the most holy place in the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the inner court, God's special and secluded presence. In fact, as we read the description of all these things, we're moving further and further away from the holy of holies, from the holy of holies with the ark to the table of showbread and the golden lampstand in the outer court of the holy place. How then was God's presence represented by this ark. First of all, as we've seen before, it was to be made with pure gold, a most precious metal, symbolic of the glory and the holiness of Almighty God. Yes, the gold itself pointed to the presence of God. Second, verse 16 the ark was to contain the items of the covenant that God had just made with his people. Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. The tablets of commandments, God's very covenant that he made with his people was to be placed inside the ark. 
verse 17, there was to be a mercy seat. A mercy seat. The actual Hebrew there says not mercy seat, but an atonement cover. Luther coined the idea of a mercy seat, and it's stuck in our translations. An atonement cover was to be placed on top of the ark. That place where the priest, the high priest, would go once a year and sprinkle blood upon the ark, upon the atonement cover. It signified then this was the place of God's presence where mercy was found in the midst of justice. It speaks of the very character of God relating to his people. Verse 20, there were two cherubim on top of the ark with their wings outstretched and their heads pointing towards each other as it were covering their faces from the glory of God. They represent the angelic host. That even they, as it were, bow in the presence, in the dwelling place of a holy God. And then fifth in verse 22, you can see I'm moving quickly. God says this, from the ark, over the ark, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people for Israel. It's very clear. God says, that's where I will speak to you. I will reveal myself to you. I will reveal my commandments to you. Leviticus 16.12 tells us that God appeared in the glory cloud above the ark and spoke to his people. Friends, we've literally skimmed over the surface of the surface of this text, but we're beginning to see, are we not, just how multifaceted the ark was. You've mentioned nothing about the carrying poles. Think on that. Why were there poles, both for the ark and for the table? I'll leave that one with you. But we've just skimmed over the surface of the Ark of the Covenant, which we've said is a true and real reflection and manifestation of God's dwelling place with his people. The complexity of it, the details of it, the depth of theology in it, all necessary for Israel to approach God. And yet all this, and everything else we read in the Old Covenant, fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. Just think on that, friends. God's glorious presence, fulfilled in the servant of the covenant Christ, the Word himself, he who was the very epicenter of God's justice and mercy towards sinners, he whom heaven and earth worship, met with us, tabernacled in our midst, so John says, in order to deliver us from our sins and make us righteous and bring us unto God. Friends, there's real payoff here for the Christian. Think on the myriad of mechanisms, even just in this chapter, and then the rest of the Pentateuch, the myriad of mechanisms that were put in place in order for Israel to come into the Holy of Holies, which they never could. Yet we can now, through our Lord 
Jesus Christ. Christ has fulfilled them all. No tabernacle, no Ark of the Covenant, no high priest in this building, no sacrifices, no cleansings, no candlesticks. Why? Christ has removed the need for them. He is all those things in one. The new covenant Christian needs not any of these earthly paraphernalia. Why? Because the work of Christ is comprehensive. Just think on that for a moment. We have a real Savior who has removed the need for all these things. All these observations, all this legislation. He has removed the need for them. By delivering us from our sins and reckoning us righteous in the sight of God. Friends, our Savior lacks nothing. We don't live in the age of partial fulfillment and promise. We live in the age of fulfillment. Friends, the mercy and forgiveness granted in Christ when given to the Christian, is true and real and complete and irrevocable. It is ours both now and for all eternity. It is finished, said our Lord. Verse 23 speaks of the legislation on the table for bread, showing us another principle about God's presence. He provides for his people. We read there of the measurement of the table, the decoration and utensils, all regulated by God, verses 23 to 26. Pure gold, once again, speaking of the holiness, the purity of holiness and the glory of God. Uh, This table was to be placed in the holy place, not the holy of holies, an outer court, the holy place. And upon that table was to be put, we read, the bread of the presence. I'm, I'm passing over a lot of information for obvious reasons. What part of the presence? Before every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread were made. They were sprinkled with frankincense. And these 12 loaves were taken into the presence of God and put on this table before the lampstand. 12 loaves, rep, loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel, listen, brought into the very presence of God. And then at the end of that week, when the loaves had been there from the Sabbath to the, the next Sabbath, the priests would come in, take out those 12 loaves and eat them and replace them with brand new loaves, week after week after week after week, century after century, this went on. A picture of true dwelling, God with his people. He said, by means of bread, you will be symbolically brought into my presence. And that bread would then nourish my ministers, It's a reminder, is it not, of what bread had been for them, the manna, as it were, that came down from heaven as they came out of Egypt, the blessing upon their kneading bowls that God had promised them would happen if they walked well before him. In God's presence and God providing all that they needed. 
It's unsurprising to us, is it not, friends, that bread as an image is taken up again in the new covenant, brought into its greatest fulfillment in the life, the person, and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Earthly bread, even our own Cindy Allen's sourdough, will leave you wanting more, but not the bread of life, not the bread that came down from heaven. You see, friends, when we, when we feed on Christ, even as we did this morning in the Lord's Supper, by faith we are spiritually feasting upon his flesh and his blood, John 6. When we do this spiritually, we are consuming that which is alive. And it remains alive within us. When we eat something, normally it dies. But when we feed on Christ, we are consuming spiritually that which lives and is eternal and is imperishable, undefiled and everlasting. Friends, when we feast on the true bread that comes down from heaven, we're fellowshipping with Christ in all his graces, all his promises, and all his provision. To feed on the bread of life by faith is to have life. It is to take, as it were, into ourselves that which has the power of everlasting life. And friends, if you feed on this bread, the bread of life, the bread that comes down from heaven, you lack nothing. I want you to be very clear about this. You lack nothing. You might lose your health, your wealth, your family, your friends. But if you feed upon Christ, you have everlasting life. You have Christ himself Friend, are you here tonight feeding on Christ? Or have you turned away from him? If there be any here this night that do not own the Savior, do not believe in him and trust in him for salvation, you're bringing eternal condemnation on your head. But we would tell you there's a better way. Trust in Christ. Believe on him. Turn from your sin and receive him as savior and feed richly on him, on that which is living, being given to you. And the last thing that we find here in our text this night is the legislation on the golden lampstand. The lampstand which would also be put upon this same table. And it teaches us that God is the light of his People, Another golden item to reflect God's character and purity of his dwelling, his presence with his people. I won't read through the details of the, uh, the, the lampstand, but it had seven parts to it coming out of it. It's placed on the table in the holy place. It's decorated with, with flowers and blossoms. It's tree-like. 
tree-like. It's reminding us of the theology of the past of the garden. It's reminding us of what is to come, that those that trust in Christ are like a, a tree planted by the water. It's a symbol of God's presence, and it brought light to that which was before it. Being a symbol of God's presence, it also is highly regulated in how it's designed and built. Verse 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Don't do it according to your own imaginations. That was the problem with Nadab and Abihu. They came before God with an incense of their own making, not according to the pattern revealed unto them, and God destroyed them. That's what's going on here. How does this lampstand reflect God's presence? First, it tells us that God is the light of his people. Now, we think of light, we, at least I do anyway, I automatically go to guidance. God is the guide of his people. He, he most surely is, and we'll come to that in a moment. But I think the light of the lampstand and its design and its material, first of all, point us to the holiness of God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's an ethical idea. It's holiness. There's no unholiness in God. And this item of light in the temple of God, in the tabernacle of God, told the people, again, God is holy, and by the way, so too must you be holy. So too must you be holy. You, Israel, we as the church, must imitate God in his holiness. But secondly, it most certainly spoke of guidance. God had just led Israel out of Egypt by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, light, as it were, directing them on their way. They were to remember that this God, this God, not the false gods of the nations round about them, but the God that dwelt in their midst was the God who brought light into existence at creation and now had manifested himself savingly in their midst through the instrument of light. Yes, creation is brought into play, but so is also redemption. And their response to that is to be holy. Light and life. Life and light. Precisely what is said of Christ in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Think on this. Mercy, atonement, presence, provision, holiness, fruitfulness, the guidance of the almighty God, all bound up in the tabernacle, but ultimately seen not in the tabernacle, but in our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, perfectly, wonderfully seen by God in the flesh. Everything the tabernacle pointed to was revealed more fully in Christ. Can we say in Christ there's every good and perfect gift? Or there's every spiritual blessing in him in the heavenly places. That's how scripture describes Christ. All the blessings of all the tabernacle inside and out. 
are found in him. I say this as we close, friends, when we read the Old Testament, when we read these passages, we must reckon with the testimony of the tabernacle. We must reckon with the testimony of the tabernacle. God's better summation of the tabernacle is the Savior. And we must take this seriously. Because again, there's real payoff in our lives. When doubts and fears arise in our lives, we must look through the tabernacle beyond to the Lord Jesus. When questions over sin and faith arise in our lives, we must look through the tabernacle and see the Savior. When battles and worries and concerns over personal holiness and our constant failure come before us, we must look through the tabernacle under the Savior. When we're looking for guidance and light on our path, look through the tabernacle unto the Savior. Because it is Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his presence, his perfect promise. He must be your start and your finish, your first and your last, your first desire and your greatest desire. Seek it in no other, because no other can provide what the Savior provides. No one and no thing can provide unto you what God has already given you in Jesus Christ. He is the better way. He is the only way. Set aside those sins that that ensnare you all the time. Each one has his or her own. Set aside any thoughts of personal righteousness making you right before God. Set aside, set aside any thought of your, of the day's sins separating you from God. Nothing can provide you what God in His Son has already given to you. And I say this, hold fast to Him according to the pattern of faith that has been delivered to you. Let's pray. We would hear and we would believe. We would trust and we would obey. Help us, Lord God, both to understand and to honor you. We desire, Lord God, to see our Savior more and more to love him more and more and trust him more and more. And we desire, Lord, to be freed from earthly ensnarements. Lord, help us in this. Remind us of the hope and the assurance of forgiveness that after sin there is repentance and reunion with you. Reveal to us the Savior more and more this week and cause us to walk well before you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.